Hello and welcome to Molecule to Market, where we go inside the outsourcing space of the global drug development sector. I'm your host, Roman Tagal, and today's episode is a little different, and dare I say, experimental, fitting given the focus of our sector. I know many of you are in commercial and business development roles, and this year has been very different and very difficult. So I reached out to someone who I regard as a guru of business development, Mr. Ian Altman. I asked if he'd come on the show and share some of his insights, especially given the year that we've just had. And I'm delighted to say that he accepted and decided to come on the show. So who is Ian? Ian is a global keynote speaker and someone I met after I saw him on stage uh, back in 2014. After the event, Ian needed a lift into the city and I was headed that way, so I offered him a lift. Needless to say, we headed off from that point. Ian started, sold, and grew his prior companies from zero to over $1 billion in value. He's the co-author of the bestseller, Same Site Selling, now in its second edition. And he's also authored hundreds of articles on Forbes and Inc. He's recognized as one of the world's top 30 global gurus on sales, and his Same Site Selling Academy is ranked in the top five globally for sales development programs. Hey, Ian, welcome to the show. Ramon, thanks for having me on, man. What are you doing on a drug development pharmaceutical related podcast, Ian? Well, you know, it is interesting because in my in my prior business, so I, I ran technology companies for the better part of 20 years. And the first clients we worked with were pharmaceutical companies. So we actually helped deliver some of the first electronic new drug applications to the FDA and um, and in uh, in the UK as well, on behalf of pharmaceutical companies, years ago when you know when everyone was moving from paper to digital. Ah, very good, very good. People are still moving from paper to digital in this sector. I have you know that that transition hasn't uh, hasn't fully happened. So, well, Ian, it's 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 great to have you here, and uh, you know, and I regard you as a friend as well. So it's uh, it's wonderful to have you sharing some of your insights with our audience and. I wanted to start with a question that I think has probably um, been at the top of mind for most of our listeners this year. The sector that we operate in is traditionally one that has lots of uh, trade events, conferences, and that kind of face-to-face element. So I'm just kind of interested to know what best practices have you seen this year uh, and that have you advised your clients this year in terms of, I suppose, getting over that uh, with the absence of those events being being in place? Absolutely. Well, and, and, and this, is, is it, this isn't unique to your industry at all. And I'm, gl- I'm glad you mentioned that because in most businesses, if you ask somebody a year ago, how do you attract new business? They would say, well, I attend networking events and I attend trade shows and conferences, and that's where all their business comes from. And all of a sudden, people woke up and said, well, okay, they're not having those events anymore, so how do I earn attention today? And really what it comes down to is we've all seen the examples of what not to do, and that is people who reach out on LinkedIn and they say, oh, I'm really interested in your profile. And then as soon as you connect to them, they start pitching their products and services, <laughs> which is just horrid. And if you're someone who you say, oh, yeah, we do that, stop doing that because you shouldn't do that to people. But instead, what we have to think about is how do business people, because your audience is all selling to other businesses, 
So they could be selling, they could be promoting their products to a medical facility. They could be selling a medical device to a healthcare facility or a practitioner. And the bottom line is what you always have to focus on is what are the problems that you're good at solving? And if you present yourself as someone who's a subject matter expert at solving those sorts of problems, you'll attract interest from people who have a desire to solve that very same problem. Yeah, I think that's that's great advice there. Just focusing on the problem as well, rather than just what you do, which is which is something that we see again and again in in in, in this this sector. And and I know you've you've managed big business development teams in the past, and you work with uh, business development leaders that have huge teams. So how how have people managed to best uh, lead business development teams and, and keep their teams engaged? this year any any best practices that you've seen you know in your experience well in in fact a lot of it is the things that worked in the past really well there were certain things that you could get away with in the past that you can't get away with as much now so if you think about it if you go back a year or more somebody who was charismatic who was really personable could do fine at a trade show, could do fine at a networking event because they kind of had a magnetic personality. People would want to hang out with them, even if they weren't necessarily that valuable in terms of providing information. Now, what you look at is, look, if someone's going to take the time to talk to you, you're not going to build this amazing rapport in a digital interaction via social media or some other way. So instead they have to look at it as if you have expertise around a given subject area or you have industry best practices, or if you can help them navigate something that's a challenge for them, then you have some, then you have additional value. What that means is that we have to start helping our team better articulate here. Here's some of the trends we're seeing in the industry. Here's some patterns that we're seeing and making it so that you're presenting yourself not as a stereotypical salesperson, but instead as a subject matter expert. And the only way you get really good at that is through practice. So you need to have a structure in terms of how you actually share this type of information with your team. And then you need to provide an environment for them to practice and rehearse those interactions. Otherwise, you, in essence, provide a vehicle for them that says, here's what I want you to do. And the first time you're going to practice it is when it really counts. And that's just a formula for disaster. <laughs> it's, it's an interesting concept that I'm sure it's well-versed in, in the sales world, but that, I suppose that that practicing element and actually rehearsing. And I know certainly in my experience, when we have big pitch pitch kind of presentations, we, we often run through them and, you know, there's, if anything, actually presenting to your colleagues is harder than presenting to clients because they tend to be a lot more critical. Um, is is that something that you still see, uh, you know, very much today that people, well, if if they're not practicing on the BD side of things and you know and rehearsing, you know, how they're going to articulate these things, is that something they should be doing, you know, into twenty twenty one? Well, yes, it's something they should be doing. And you give the sales industry way too much credit because you said, well, I guess that's something that they do, people who are sales professionals. The reality is most people in sales, when I ask them, well, by show of hands, how many of you practice at least one hour a week? No one's hands go up. There's usually one person who says, well, I do. 
And you say, really, how do you practice? Well, I don't, it's not really practice. It's just, you know, I meet with clients all the time. So I call that practice. Well, <laughs> so the, the top athletes in the world, do they practice more or less than the average athletes? Well, they practice more. Okay. What about the top musicians? Same thing. Would you want to have surgery performed by a doctor who would never practice the procedure before, but is experimenting on you? No. But people in sales, you say, well, do you role play? Oh, I hate role play. Oh, because I guess you would rather mess it up when you're with a real client than when you're with a colleague. I mean, it's just, it's a silly psychological barrier that many people face. And so it's interesting in the same side selling Academy, we have a game called same side improv. It used to be a physical card game. And now we have it where it's a, where it's a digital product. And the idea is that within the platform, each time somebody is going to rehearse a, a role player, we call it improv session. The person playing the customer picks one of, you know, a series of, of different cards. So they're, 25, 30 different variations of this. And the card might say something like, you're just trying to get free information, or you're trying to use this to leverage your existing vendor, or you had a bad experience with another vendor on a similar project, or you're afraid to lose control or headcount, um, you know, things like that. So the idea is that each time you practice, you're getting a new scenario that's more realistic than maybe people are used to doing. And that way you get real practice under live fire type situations so that when you're with the client and the client says, well, so how specifically would you do this? You're thinking to yourself, ah, when I have that card that says trying to get free information, that's the type of question I ask. So now I can ask a good qualifying question to see if they're just trying to get free information. And that way I'm not just giving up free consulting. Instead, I'm actually helping to qualify the right opportunities. I love that. And it's almost like that kind of objection handling, right? Like, you know, kind of second guessing what those objections are going to be and actually having a prepared response ready for all of them and having rehearsed them. So I think that's that's great advice. And and this is a very specific question to the sector that we operate in, but I'm, I'm curious to, to kind of get your thoughts. So Often in the sector, you know, within say drug, within say contract manufacturing that many of our listeners are involved in, you have a situation where a client is, you know, maybe down to two vendors to manufacturing companies that they're looking to to send their drug product to be produced, you know, whether it be for a clinical trial or a, you know a commercial supply, and often by this point, you know, there's very there's very little between the two from a functional perspective you know they have the capacity they have the technical expertise they've got the capability i'm sure you've seen that in other sectors is there is there anything that you've seen that works really well in terms of i suppose tipping the balance into you know one one side over the other night you know i'm well aware that it would be different for most deals but and it, there's an element of subjectivity but are there any interesting kind of techniques or tools or i suppose behaviors that you see between uh, different uh, i suppose organizations to to i suppose win the business when they're in that situation absolutely so competition obviously is is prevalent across industries and the biggest issue that most people have is that they say ah we're so much better than these other people, but the client doesn't see that. The client sees us as being the exact same thing as them. So they treat us like a commodity because just about every contract manufacturer is going to say, yeah, but sure, they claim to do the same things as us, but they don't really in these three specific areas. And where people lose those deals, ironically, 
it's not at the it's not when you get down to the finish line where you lose the deal. You lost the deal at step one. And so what happens is if you can set expectations and determine what's important to your client at step one, then you can remind them that those things are what they told you were important at the at the last step. So usually people say, oh, we lost the deal because this other vendor was 2% less than we were. No, you didn't. You lost the you lost the deal because the client couldn't possibly envision why it was worth paying anything more for you than somebody else. But your job is to help them see what that is. So there's a concept that I teach called the client vision pyramid that says when as soon as someone expresses interest in what you do, you would say, "Oh, well, let's say you were a, a, a company doing clinical trials." You would say, "Well, so when people are looking for help with a clinical trial, they're usually looking for help at one of three levels. It's kind of shaped like a pyramid. At the base level, we call the effective level. This is where you know exactly what you want done. You don't need you don't need input from somebody else. You just need someone to execute what your ideas are. So it's kind of self-directed. The next level up in the pyramid is what we call the enhanced level. This is where somebody has best practices. They've got two or three different formulas. They fit you into one of those models, and then they help you run with it. At the highest level is what we call the engaged level. This is somebody who they, they know the ins and outs of the regulatory agencies. They know how to work with that therapeutic area. They, they've got investigators in different places around the world, and they can give you feedback on your protocol to make sure that you're not going on a path that's going to backfire on you three steps down the road. And they're going to, in some cases, not tell you what you want to hear, but tell you what you need to hear to increase the likelihood of results. So which level are you looking for? And what I've just done now is I've painted a picture of three different levels. The client, in most cases, is going to say, well, I want the engaged level. That's great. And everyone else they talk to, they're going to put into one of those other categories. And you created the categories. So it makes it so that now what you're describing is the three different levels of vendor out there. It's not the three different levels you can perform at within your own company. It's more, look, there are the people who take direction and just do what the client asked. There are people who have a template. And as long as you fit in one of their templates, you're fine. And then there are people who tailor it based on all these different factors to make sure you get the right outcome. Mm-hmm. Uh, I love that. Yeah. And I think, you know, I'm sure our listeners are jotting down notes there in terms of how to be, uh, to make sure they're in that top category um, in the, in the eyes of the client. And what, one thing I was going to ask you about was um, I suppose what you've seen in terms of marketing and business development teams working really well, both kind of best practice in, in, in terrible practice. And the reason I ask that is that a lot of the listeners that we have, Ian, are often in, in commercial teams where for whatever reason, there isn't alignment between what the marketing teams are doing and what the business development teams are doing. So it's really kind of interesting to get your thoughts on um, what, I suppose, even tips more than anything of you know how to keep that aligned and get the two kind of working hand in hand together. Absolutely. Well, so First of all, when sales and marketing are not aligned, it's a shame because marketing's job is to attract people with a story. So the client says, ooh, that's the story that resonates with me, so I want to learn more. And then sales' job is, once they've piqued someone's interest on the marketing side, is to help determine if there's a good fit for those people. 
So that way we can now move them forward through our, through our process and reach a conclusion. Sales's job, by the way, is not to sell every opportunity that comes in the door. Sales's job is to figure out which is the right opportunity and help that move forward. When mm -hmm. you don't have marketing and sales aligned, what does that mean? That means that you're attracting people into the process who are then going to be disappointed. Oftentimes what happens is the client hears two different stories, one from marketing and one from sales. They assume that one of them is lying because the stories don't match. <laughs> Fortunately for the marketing people, they're usually going to assume it's the salesperson who's lying. And Thank then, God for that. <laughs> yeah, and, then, and, then, and, then, and then it creates all this mistrust instead of if you, for example, if you, if you have a medical device and, you know, whatever this device is, it solves a certain problem. What you want is marketing to tell a story that says, here are the three different levels of how you can solve this problem. Here's the engaged level. If you're looking for that, that's what we do. Now, when the client comes in and starts talking to sales, if sales doesn't ever mention these three different levels, it's a shame because it's like, wait, we set this up. That's what piqued their interest. Let's carry this through. Also, what happens is in many organizations, the sales organization is reaching out to clients but they don't find the marketing information relevant enough to share, or there's is there not an easy way for them to do it with their potential clients. And what you want is you want marketing content that supports sales, as well mm -hmm. as you want to have it so that the sales organization is giving constant input to marketing that says, here's what we're hearing on our phone calls. Here's what we're hearing on our Zoom calls with people. Here are the types of questions people are asking. We want to address those questions. And oftentimes marketing needs the input from sales in order to effectively answer those questions. And you might ask, well, well, how are they going to fill that gap? Guess what? So sales, one of the things is you want to make sure that sales and marketing are in meetings together. There should never be a marketing meeting without anybody from sales. There should never be a sales meeting without anybody from marketing being present. It's just it, it's malpractice if you do it that way. You want to make sure you always have a representative from marketing and sales and a representative from sales and marketing. And what happens is sales says, here's the question we're getting from people. And marketing just has to say, really, what else do they ask? And they'll go through that and say, okay, what are one or two answers that you typically give them? And now, guess what? Now you have an idea of how your team is answering them. You might, from a marketing side, say, I don't think that's a good answer. We have a better way to answer it. Oftentimes, your top performing salespeople are going to have a really good answer. And you say, well, so all I have to do now is I have to work that into my marketing. So that's part of our message. The other thing that's interesting in this day and age is with everything, everything tending to happen virtually, marketing can take those common questions that their salespeople get hit with. And they can have the best person on the team answer that via video. And now when the client says, well, how does this product compare to this other product? The salesperson can say, you know what? I can tell you. But one of my colleagues does a great job explaining that. Can I send you a link to a video that really just encapsulates that? And then you and I can touch base. And I can answer any additional questions that you have. And now the client gets that question answered from the best qualified person to answer the question the person who has the most compelling answer that really clears things up for them. Uh, I think that's great. That, and it's a, it's a really good point in terms of the alignment between the two, but also just, I, I love the, 
idea of taking those common questions and you know from a BD perspective and actually then uh, repurposing that into into marketing content that actually speaks to the buyer and says, "Hey, I'm I'm that person. That's that's actually exactly the problem I need to solve." So that's uh, that's great advice, Ian. And, and I wanted to ask you about uh, there's a concept I'm I'm 99 sure I I learned from you over the years, which is kind of. Uh, for, you know, not forcing the fit and, and saying no to clients. And you said something interesting there about, you know, not some salespeople or, you know, I suppose bad sales practices saying that all customers are, are good customers and everything is a good sale. I'd love you to talk about <laughs> forcing the fit and, and I suppose that qualification stage. And um, it's a really interesting time in, in the sector that we operate in that demand is almost outstripping supply in the market sure so many of the vendors in the sector that that listen to uh the, the podcast is actually not it's not necessarily about uh additional sales it's actually more about getting the right sales to fill the resource that's available so i'd love you to talk a bit about kind of what a good customer looks like versus the ones to, to maybe walk away from yep and, and we can even use a medical metaphor for this which is so for example somebody who is a rheumatologist is perfectly skilled at treating certain conditions. They could also treat other conditions, but truth be told, they stay in their zone. They stay in their field. They're going to, they're going to deliver well above anyone's expectations. If they start straying outside of that and they say, Oh yeah, I also do some work in dermatology. All of a sudden they're not as relevant. The same Mm -hmm. thing happens in any type of business, which is if you stay focused on the areas where you provide superior outcomes where you uniquely solve a problem, then your market will value that and you can charge a premium for it. When you start straying outside of your core expertise, that's when people say, oh, well, yeah, we would work with them as long as they're the cheapest. Or they start vetting you to make sure that you can actually do what you're saying. So when you can stay narrowly focused on the things that you do best, What you have to think about is when that potential client comes in, your job is not to convince them. The first job is for them to convince you that they have a problem that's worth solving, that your company happens to be really good at solving. And if not, you shouldn't be presenting a solution if A, they don't have a problem worth solving, and B, if you can't help them. I remember um, last year, a company contacted me and they said, oh, we heard you speak at this event. We have this event for 500 women in sales. The top 500 women in sales in our company would love to see if you're available to keynote for that event. Now, what immediately comes to mind? I'm thinking to myself, okay, there's 500 women in sales. If I'm one of them in the audience, I'm thinking, okay, there's 500 women in sales. Why is a guy giving the talk? <laughs> like, so I said, I said, well, do you think it's possible that your audience would respond better to a woman speaking to them if it's a group of women in sales. And 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 the and, and it was funny, the person calling me was a woman. She said, I hadn't really thought of that. We actually talked to a couple different speakers for this event. Uh, we're also men, and you're the first person to mention. I said, look, I'm, I'm totally flattered. I would love to speak at your event. I just wonder, would your audience respond better I'm happy to recommend some women who I know who are amazingly talented in this space. And I just feel like that might be more respectful to the audience of doing it that way. And listen, if you tell me, no, no, 
because Ian, we want you to speak about this topic. That's totally fine. And if you tell me, look, there are, there are six speakers and you're the only guy, fine. But I just want to make sure we're serving their needs. And I actually recommended a couple of people. They selected one of them. The event was successful. And then a few months later, they contacted me and said, hey, we now have this event for 3,000 people. It's, it's everybody. Can you do that event? But it wasn't because, oh, I don't want to do that event. I was just thinking, what's in the best interest of the client? And if you can look yourself in the mirror and say, I am always looking out for the best interest of my clients, your clients will always come to you first. They will always fight to pay a little bit more for you than for somebody else. In my prior business, we did technology. We didn't sell hardware at all. And our clients would call us up and say, well, which, which one of these big servers should we get? And we would take the time to walk them through the process and say, look, we're not going to sell it to you. These other people will. And after a while, one of our clients said, well, you, know, you keep asking us. And you realize we don't sell this stuff. And they said, yeah, but we know we always get an honest answer from you. And so if, if you're not the best people for it, you tell us, which means that our default is to come to you with everything. And then you get to decide which stuff you want. You, you, you bang on actually. And then it, it, you know, a lot of it is about just showing up and, and, and building trust with people that you're not going to necessarily just take on a project for them, even though you're not hundred percent sure if you could do it. And your point about looking in the mirror and, you know, are you the best person or the best fit? for the problem that's that the client needs solving i think it's a, a really interesting point you're listening to molecule to market where we go inside the outsourcing space of the global drug development sector the podcast for professionals working in the pharma and biotech contract services space i wanted to ask you about a concept called the elevator rant which I, I'm pretty sure I learned that from you. So um, I, I don't know if it's your concept of it. it existed well before that, but for our listener that has never heard, I'm sure they've all heard of an elevator pitch, Yep. but I'm not sure if they've heard of an elevator rant. Do you mind explaining the elevator rant? Well, and it was, and I will tell you that I remember when I came to speak back in, I guess it was 2014 when we met, <laughs> um, I remember asking people, I said, do they call it an elevator pitch in the UK or is it called a lift pitch? Like what's, you know, I was actually concerned because I tried to make sure I had all the terminology so people didn't have to translate. But the, so the- uh, on, on, that, on that point, Ian, I, uh, I actually, I, I said to my, we were somewhere the other day and I said to one of my kids, I was like, oh, we'll take the elevator. And then I just put my hand in my head and said, oh my God, I've just said the word elevator instead of lift. I am, <laughs> I am, I'm, I'm becoming American. <laughs> so. So, the, so the, the idea of an elevator pitch, most people would understand, which is what's an elevator pitch. And what people say is, oh, well, it's the, it's the, and depending on who you ask and I guess where they live, they'll say, oh, it's the 15, 20, make it 20 second, um, little spiel about what it is that you do. Well, I've done this research with over 10,000 executives and how they make decisions and how they approve decisions. And, and people ask questions and at no point does, is one of the questions, what do they do or what is it? That's not the questions they ask. There are three questions everyone asks and we can, we can get into that if, if we have time. But fundamentally, the elevator rant is the upside down version of the elevator pitch. And, and the term itself is something that a buddy of mine, Bob London, um, coined the term elevator rant. And you know, my definition of it is, is different, but I just love the terminology. So I always give him credit for coming up with the moniker of the elevator rant. But the idea of the elevator rant is you get on an elevator 
No one else is on there. Right as the door is about to close, someone sticks their arm in the door spring open and two people get on the elevator with you. In today's day and age, I guess, presumably in full PPE. But, but nonetheless, <laughs> two people get on the door closed behind them. These two people are your ideal client. And they are complaining to one another about something on the entire ride up to, let's say, the 20th floor that when you hear it, you think, man, no one is better at solving that than we are. In fact, they're lucky to be on the elevator with us because we can really help them. What would it sound like in their words that would tell you, wow, this is someone I should have a conversation with? Now, keep in mind, no one is getting on the elevator saying, oh, you know, I was looking for a marketing firm. And I Googled it, nothing came up. I mean, that's not what's happening. No one, no one's elevator rant is going to describe your services. No one's going to say, oh, I was hoping to find this type of medical device, but I couldn't find it anywhere. I was hoping to find this piece of lab equipment and I couldn't find it anywhere. No, what they're going to say is things like, man, I'm sick and tired of every time we run this assay that we don't get reliable results. We have to do it two or three times. It's killing us in time to market. And if we don't solve this soon, here's what's going to happen. That's an elevator rant. So an elevator rant usually has three components. It has emotion, something like I'm sick and tired of, I'm frustrated, I'm annoyed. It has the issue which is things like, well, we're not getting reliable results, so we have to do them over and over again. And then the impact or the consequence of that is we're losing time to market. We're going to lose market share. We may not get this, this drug to market in time to beat other people to market, in which case then we've just wasted millions of dollars for no reason. Brilliant. I'm so glad you articulated that. And in, in, I love the example you used as well. So our, you know, our listeners that will probably bring it to life for them more, more by using that particular example. And I, and I also wanted to ask you, Ian, about, uh, you know, what is your market gluten free? And <laughs> this is the story that, that, that you, you've told before, which I think I, I heard when I, when I met you in 2014, but I think what's interesting about this concept and I'll let you talk our listener through the concept is how that they could then apply to uh, the people listening to the podcast in terms of their businesses that they operate in when they, they have superpowers within their business that they just might not even realize. So, so firstly, I would love you to just talk about the the concept and also just how it might apply to, you know, uh, you know, a typical supplier or vendor in in the contract service space. Sure. So I'll, I'll give you the brief background story. And it was interesting because it was, I guess, 2012, 13, somewhere in that time frame, where our son got diagnosed with celiac disease, which means he can't eat anything with gluten in it. And he gets diagnosed in early December, and we were taking a trip to Disney at the end of December. And we're thinking, oh, how hard can this be? This will be fine. So we get to the park before it opens, which is Brilliant marketing on the part of Disney because they tell you, oh, you can buy the special ticket so you can get there before the park opens. It's really, I just call it, these are the schmucks who paid extra to come into the park a half hour early. But we were convinced this was a great thing. So anyhow, so we get there early. We're going on different rides, this and that. Now it's late morning. And what goes on with your kids? Well, they're hungry. So we're walking we're walking down Main Street, um, USA at Disney World. and Every place that we smell or see with food, it's like, oh, man, that smells good. Oh, those, 
Oh, those are cookies. Yeah, he can't eat those because those have gluten in them. All right. Well, that's not going to work. Okay. Um, we walk down a little bit further and it's like, oh, wait, there's an ice cream part. Okay, we can get them like some ice. No, because they have waffle cones and and the scoops get cross-contaminated. And so that's not safe for him either. And we see this sign for this popcorn cart that's got this big sign across that says gluten-free. And so my son sees this. He goes, Dad, look at this. They, they have gluten-free popcorn can we get a large? And I said, dude, if they'll fill a trash liner with popcorn, I'll buy it. I'm just thrilled. We found something that you can actually eat. I mean, I was thinking about, can I pay this guy to follow us around the park with the cart and this popcorn? Because I found these found something he can eat, but here's the interesting thing. What does the popcorn vendor have to do to make the popcorn gluten-free? Absolutely nothing. Popcorn's always been gluten-free unless they add a contaminant to it it's going to be gluten-free. But they're advertising it as gluten-free because they know there's a subset of the market that needs that and it becomes a magnet to them. And so what you have to think about in your business is what's your gluten-free? What is it that you already do that you've been doing that you just don't tell people about? And it could be, it could be that, oh, and we and and we have a full part 11 compliance packet for you to streamline your validation process and someone in engineering is going to say yeah we've always had that true but the but someone in regulatory is going to see that and say no no you got to buy this product cuz it already has a validation package mm-hmm. and the reality is guess what we know the company has to do their own validation anyhow once they once they implement that product but by explaining that we have a package where everything's buttoned up for them and it simplifies and streamlines their process, that's great. Or it might be, oh, and we actually assign an engineer to help you in, you know, integrate this into your um, GMP. Oh, really? That's great. Well, yeah, we always had to do that anyhow. But now we explicitly tell people that it's part of the process. That's great. And for, for our listener, the question is, what is your business's gluten-free? It's funny, you know, Ian, when, when I first learned that concept for, from you a, a few years later, it kind of something dawned on me where we were chatting to a potential client and uh, every year since I've run my business, we've done what we call kind of client research where we basically do a, a you know an interview with all of our, as many of our clients as we can over the phone and get some real life feedback and, you know, how are we performing and all that type of thing. And it's just been part of, the way we've developed our business and you know every every marketing agency in the world says you know they're client-centric and all that type of thing and someone said well you know how are you client-centric and i was like well you know every year we you know we ask you all and we speak to you all and when we then basically you know refine our business in line with the needs of our customers and he was like that's great why didn't you tell us that right at the start <laughs> i was like oh my god that's our gluten-free that was our gluten-free so i know we i know we only have another five minutes left so i wanted to cover a couple of final topics one was around procurement and price negotiation so a lot of the people that are listening will have have uh would have would have worked on say uh you know big um often multi-year you know, could be millions of dollars, could be hundreds of thousands of dollars deals and that end up uh, with a procurement department. For example, yep. if if they're doing a, you know, if there's a vendor doing a deal with a, a big farmer's procurement company, it's a very common occurrence. So uh, any advice on dealing with procurement teams and, and handling that kind of price negotiation part of it? Well, the, so there, there, there are a few concepts. The first is that you can never give a unilateral concession. What I mean by that is when you give someone a price to do 
ABC. These are the three things we're going to do, and this is how much it costs. If you then tell the client, okay, I'll still give you A, B, and C. I'm not going to change any of the terms, but I'll acquiesce and give you a lower price. Then what you're teaching your client is some really bad lessons. First, you're teaching them, look, I, were, I was ripping you off before. I was overcharging you before. Now that you called me on it, I'm going to give you a lower price for the same thing, which means that you probably shouldn't trust me ever again when I give you a price. <laughs> the second thing you're teaching them is you may as well just keep asking for a discount because you're not giving anything up by getting a lower price. And you're teaching them that, look, anytime these people give us a number, we can't think of it with any sort of credibility because they'll always fold like a tent if, if, we, if we push back at all. I remember years ago, I had a client who it was a, it was a new client coming in and, the, and they said, well, so the, the problem we have is that our vendor, our, our clients just beat us up until we just eventually get to a point where it's all break even. And so we're, we're selling stuff. It's just, we're not making any margin. And I said, well, how do your clients know that you've hit break even? And I'm like, well, I don't know. I, I guess we just stopped discounting at that point. I said, okay, well, what if you stop discounting sooner? It's like, like, you know, they're, they're pushing until they get there. So there's a concept that I talk about, um, which is so, so oftentimes I'll ask people, well, gee, if you were to catch fire, what are the three things you've been trained to do? And anybody who grew up in, in, in the United States has been taught you stop, drop and roll. So you stop what, you know, so you stop what you're doing, you drop to the floor, you roll around. That's what puts out the fire. So then we say, okay, so is anybody more likely to catch fire than they are to face pricing pressure? The answer is no. Okay. Then what are the three things you're supposed to do when you face pricing pressure? And after a little bit of time, most people say, well, we stop, drop and roll. We stop, what we're doing, we drop our price, we roll over. <laughs> and, and instead we want to think of what I like to call stop, swap and trade. So first it's stop and clarify. So the client says, well, this is too expensive. Do you mean that you need different payment terms? Do you, are you looking for different volume? Um, you know, what is it about the price that that's too much for you compared to the results that you're getting? Then we want to think about swapping. So the client says, well, gee, your, your price is a dollar per unit. We want to pay 95 cents per unit. Okay. Well, what are some of the things that we could swap out? Maybe it's lower quality. Maybe it's a longer turnaround time. Maybe it's different payment terms. How do I swap those? And then the trade is a little bit more subtle, which is, Look, if someone just needs a little bit of a variance, but I told you you can't give a unilateral concession, what can you get in return? It might be a case study. It might be co-presenting an event together. It might be an article together, something that gives you benefit that doesn't necessarily cost them money. You just can't give a unilateral concession. Unfortunately, businesses get beat on this all the time, and then they usually come back and say, well, yeah, I can't believe this happened. I said, well, what percent of your deals does procurement end up beating you down at the end? All of them. Okay, well, then whose fault is it if you're not prepared? <laughs> and if you know that's what's going to happen, you need to fix it well in advance. Yeah, and you know what? It's funny, uh, when, when I first saw you, Ian, um, shortly after a client of ours won a, won a contract with a big pharmaceutical company and they were in the negotiation phase and Pre-COVID, uh, the big pharmaceutical companies are notoriously don't uh, don't publicize the vendors that they work with, um, or they you know they don't allow press releases and case studies. They do on on, on exceptional occasions, 
and when the contract came to get done, they were the big pharma company was pushing for a discount with the with the contract manufacturer, and I and I'd said to the client, hey, ask ask if they'll do allow us to do a press release and you know put up you know, the deal without sharing the numbers and you know put the deal right release and put it out and send it to trade media and uh, the big pharma company said, yeah, that's fine, and you know the discount was like five grand or ten grand. It was it actually wasn't very much money, but actually what happened off the back of that was. The contract manufacturer was able to publicize the deal and the deal was actually very specific to a innovative technology so we were able to publicize that and what came off the back of that was loads of inquiries because people were like we didn't realize that you guys did this so it can it can work out in your favor what seemingly seems like a discount uh, and you're getting something else or a tradable in return can can work out really well so i think that's that's great advice and my final i suppose question for you ian I, and you know we could probably chat all evening <laughs> and, and, and and i'm sure our uh you know our, our listeners would love to hear more of your advice and and at the end i'm going to ask you to share about your academy which is something i didn't know much about when we, when we were speaking before the podcast i'd love to you share a little bit more about that right at the end and you know going into 2021 um you know i, I just kind of would like to know if there's any other bits of advice for uh, leadership teams and for sales teams in terms of, you know, key things to just make sure they do, you know, for example, you know, rehearsing, dealing with objections, the types of things that you said there before. Are there any kind of really key points that, you know, if, if there's one takeaway point that, you know, a business development manager or a head of business development takes from, from you being on, on the podcast, what, what would that be? Well, I want to, I want to over deliver. So I'm going to give you two. <laughs> so, so the, the, the first, the first one is that you need to spend a fair amount of time making sure that your messaging is crystal clear and laser focused for your audience. So they know without a doubt where you're a great fit and where you may not be. In essence, what problems are you really good at solving so that you become a magnet for that and people see you as a subject matter expert. The second part is, in terms of your teams, if you think about the top performing salespeople, the top performing business development teams, are not necessarily the ones who know the ins and outs of their product, but they're the people who understand how their customers buy, and they're able to build trust through that process. So whereas many companies, especially in this space, spend a lot of time training people on the technical ins and outs, especially right now, you really need to spend the time making sure you're developing people's skills and asking the right questions and helping the client navigate the sales process because you can't rely as much on the charisma and and you know how much they attract people at a conference or event because those things aren't happening and we need to make sure that we're seen as someone who's a valuable resource, not someone just trying to sell something. That's great advice. Absolutely great advice. And on that final point about developing skills, would love you to you know tell our listeners a little bit about the, the same side selling uh, academy that you that you launched. Yeah, so it's, it's something I'm very proud of. We launched it pre-COVID, and the idea was that we had many clients who said, "Look, you know, I, I need a way to build a common language for our teams, reinforce some of these concepts." And so, the the top performing sales teams, there are three elements that they need to have. The first one is they need to have a common framework or language so that everyone has 
the same terminology, the same process, the same structure they follow, because that's how you can tell if one rep is outperforming another rep. If everyone's following the same process, then you can tell who your top performers are and who aren't. You can tell, you can make adjustments. If everyone's doing their own thing, it's really difficult to figure that out. The second thing they need is something which is, in essence, a playbook that says, when this happens, here's why it's happening and here's how to resolve it. For example, they seem really interested, but now the client is ghosting us and they won't return our phone calls. We never hear back from them. What could be going on? Or, gee, the client said they, they love our stuff, but this other vendor is less expensive. Or, hey, this sounds great, but we may want to push this off till next year. How do you deal with those situations? And so you need a playbook that navigates those types of situations with little micro lessons. And then you need reinforcement and coaching. And so what I built in the Same Side Selling Academy is just that. So you have the core lessons, which is this framework of 10 lessons with worksheets and, and curriculum and all that. Then you have the objection clinic component, which are these micro lessons. There are new objection clinics every single month. And then there's what we call the coach's corner. So once a month, we go through these live coaching sessions where we role play situations. Now, every single thing we do is done on video. It's transcribed so that you've got everything's full text searchable and the system tracks people's progress. So a manager can see who spent time on which lessons, how they're doing on the quizzes, what kind of progress they're making. And then, of course, they role play these live sessions and we, we edit those down into little bite-sized pieces so that in a given hour-long coaching session, we may have eight different segments that then people can search through and find. And where a lot of my clients use this is, oh, this situation came up. They search the academy. They find the two lessons that apply to that. They watch those. And now they're ready for the call with that client. And it's really something that I didn't even appreciate what the benefit would be. And of course, we launched this pre-COVID. And you know, as the community grows, it's just phenomenal. And what I think is funny is you'll see one company, it's a small business that says, oh, well, we followed this advice. We just won this really big deal and it's $25,000. And then you'll have another client in there who says, well, yeah, we use these concepts and it really helped in this one deal. And I'll say, well, how big of a deal is it? It's a good size deal. I mean, these guys are spending about, about mm, 20, $25 million a month with us. Right? <laughs> and it's just, and it's the same people in the session, but guess what? They had the same problems. It's just on a different scale. That's great. And uh, well, yeah, well, congratulations, Ian, on, on the success of the Academy. I'm not, I'm not at all surprised given the, I suppose the learnings that I've had from your materials over the years and yeah and just just as a final thank you because i've taken up a big chunk of your time and you are a very busy in demand guy and i'm very grateful that you made the time to come on the podcast and and share some of your insights uh with our with our audience uh for for our listener you know google ian altman and you know look up same side selling it's probably the best sales book i've ever ever read and um you know Ian's very great on on social media, and I'm sure he encourages you to to get in touch. He's not that difficult to find because he's he's got a good Google profile when you look for his name. So uh, Ian, thanks again for coming on, and uh, yeah, really appreciate you making the time to come on Molecule to Market. Ramon, it's absolutely a pleasure, and I, I just love seeing somebody who takes these integrity based approaches and applies to their business as you have. It's fun to watch you do amazing things as well. Thanks, Ian. Take care. Stay safe.
Hi again, thanks so much for tuning in to Molecule to Market. We hope you enjoyed today's episode. You can find more shows on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you like to listen. Get in touch with us on our website, moleculetomarketpod.com, and follow us on LinkedIn or Twitter, and we will see you again next week. Molecule to Market is sponsored and funded by Remarketing, an international content, digital, and design agency that helps companies get noticed, raise profile, and generate leads in life sciences.